Welcome to the Days for Girls podcast, a show about breaking barriers for women and girls around the world. I'm your host, Jessica Williams, Chief Communications Officer at Days for Girls International. At Days for Girls, we believe in a world where periods are never a problem. We are on a mission to shatter the stigma and limitations associated with menstruation by increasing access to sustainable period products and menstrual health education for all people with periods. Today's guest is Mira Adura. Mira is the founder of Red & Co., a female and minority-owned boutique consultancy that helps brands make a larger, more meaningful impact on society. For example, Red & Co. created Made With Code, one of Google's most important initiatives to diversify the tech industry. They also created Netflix's popular brand campaign, Make Room, that positioned Netflix as a champion of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mira got started at Wyden and Kennedy, Nike's longtime advertising agency, creating award-winning campaigns for Nike, The Girl Effect, and Travel Oregon. She is a staunch advocate of female leadership, gender equity, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mira and her work have also been featured on Good Morning America in the New York Times, Fast Company, and other prominent media platforms. Her recent TEDx talk, How Women Can Change the World by Asking Why Not Me, shares a lot of her thoughts on the world. Mira is an Egyptian-born, Lebanese-Palestinian, fluent in Arabic, French, and English. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Now let's go on to the show. Mira, it is so incredible to have you on the Days for Girls podcast. It's such an honor that we get to interview you. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for asking. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, you're my first person I think I've interviewed who actually lives in Portland like myself. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. For some reason, like we work with so many people outside of Portland. So um, it's kind of a treat when you get to actually connect with somebody in Portland. It is. It is. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, But you're not originally from Portland. You're not originally from the United States. Can you talk about your story of growing up in the Middle East and coming to the United States for college? And can you just take us into a little bit of your upbringing and how you got here? Yeah, sure. So I was born in Alexandra, Egypt. Um, I grew up between Beirut, Lebanon and Toronto, Canada. Um, My family is both Lebanese and Palestinian. And I came to the U.S. for graduate studies um, after I finished my undergrad at the American University in Beirut. Um, When I graduated there, then I came to the U.S., did my graduate studies here And then went back to Beirut thinking that I'm probably, you know, I really wanted to work in Europe, um, thinking that I would be interviewing and applying for jobs in Europe. And then um, by a lot of just the universe and stars aligning, I got a job at Whiting Kennedy in Portland. And that's what made me kind of come more permanently to the U.S. Um, And I remember my dad even saying, like, did you pick the furthest place away from me to move to? (laughs) Um, So I moved from Beirut, Lebanon to Portland, Oregon, which is, you know, quite over 6,000 miles away. Yeah, that's that's a long way. And since I live here, I know what a big deal it is to get a job at Wyden and Kennedy, but maybe a lot of people don't know that. So for those people who don't know, it's arguably one of the best ad agencies in the world. And it's 
your story is really cool because you did an art project in college that got the attention of Wyden and Kennedy. So it's a really cool project. I thought you could maybe tell us more about that and, and how Wyden and Kennedy became aware of it and what happened next. Yeah, sure. So when I moved to the States for my graduate studies, um, during this program, I was in a advertising mass communications program. And during this program, uh, one of the classes I was taking uh, asked us to do kind of a conceptual interactive art project. And uh, the theme that I picked to do my conceptual interactive art project about was basically when I first moved here, you know, growing up in Beirut, people we we're kind of obsessive a little bit. We read a lot. We listen to a lot of things. And then we kind of, we don't trust any of it. You know, we don't trust anybody's one opinion. We always want to make our own opinions. So um, when I first moved to the US, uh, I moved to Richmond, Virginia, and I was really kind of surprised that people would just take whatever the media said kind of blindly a little bit and not question it in any way and just take it as the truth. And it, and this is, you know, we're talking 20 years ago. I think now, you know, now fake news is kind of a hot topic. But back then it was like, I was like, how, how do you even believe that? Like, do you, have you read anything about this? Have you fact-checked any of this? Like, how do you just believe it as if it's like, you know, um, the truth and you haven't really kind of dug into it? So I decided to do a whole interactive project around that topic where I basically um, had all these on a on a like really big mural. I had all these different images of things that we see in the media. Um, so it was everything from you know what we're told to eat, what we're told to wear, what we're told to look like, how we're told to learn, like just everything. It was all these different visuals and images that told you how to look or be in the world. And underneath this um, big mural, I had this opinions box and it asked you for your opinion to kind of say your opinion on everything that you're seeing, like all these different images that you're fed every day. And it asked you for your opinion about the project. And as people took time to kind of fill out these different little um, kind of uh, opinions uh, slips, they would put it into this opinions box. And I had, sh I had hidden a shredder underneath this opinions box that would shred everybody's opinion as soon as they put it in there. Um, so for me, that was like a really powerful way to kind of um, tell people that we don't really care about your opinions because we fed you what you think is your point of view. So it doesn't really it doesn't really matter what your opinion is because we've kind of fed it to you. So it's just a really provocative way for me to to really get people talking about the subject. And through a professor of mine who kind of uh, this project kind of found its way to Wyden and Kennedy and onto Dan Wyden's desk. And he saw that project and he's kind of very, very well known for hiring people in a very non-traditional way. And he saw that project and he thought it was brilliant. And he decided basically to hire me out of um, grad school, just based on that project alone, without ever seeing like any kind of traditional portfolio at all, even though, you know, I did have one, but that was basically the project that sold him on me. <laughs> I have heard of his unorthodox hiring. Method, so. <laughs> yes, he's pretty visionary that way. Mm -hmm, so cool. Now you're working at Wyden and Kennedy and how long were you working there before you started to realize that? And you tell this in your Ted talk and I just, I love this story because this happened to me too. You learned that your male counterpart was making more money than you when you were working at White and Kennedy. Can you talk about that whole piece of your TED talk and how you handled that situation? So yeah, I was there for 10 years and, you know, 10 years is a long time in a job. 
anyway, you know, but people tend, or at least back then, people tended to stay at that place because, you know, you're constantly flying around the world, you're you're in and out of Portland, you know, you kind of stay there because you're just working on all this, you know, I was working on Nike. So I got to work on all this inspiring work. And I was an athlete growing up. So for me, it was like, you know, I get to work on this thing that I was really passionate about. And then years kind of flew by. Um, but then I was starting to, there was just like some things that started to kind of pop up for me that I was starting to feel like um, getting an itch to like, do different things. And, um, you know, I had like some projects in mind that I wanted to do and I knew I wouldn't have time for. Um, and then, you know, I think all these things started bubbling up for me. And I think um, seeing, I actually saw what my um, male counterpart that I was partnered with um, at the time, which, um, you know, he had the same number of years of experience, same talent, you know, we were partners on a project doing the project with very, uh, very similar talents, uh, I found out that he was making double what I was making. So for me, it almost became like that thing almost became like, uh, just what I needed to kind of make that decision. It was like the universe giving me a sign. So yeah, I could have kind of been so angry about it and been, you know, gone up and asked to like, get this take, you know, figure it out and get adjusted and do all this thing. But it almost like became like the sign I needed from the universe to just kind of quit that job and realize that I had so much in me that I wanted to do in the world. And it was just the time to kind of go out and do them. Yeah. I'm so glad you took that and you went on to do what you're doing now, because what you're doing now is so impactful. You created your own ad agency and uh, you did this. One of the reasons it sounds like you did this was to challenge a lot of norms and advertising. So can you tell us a little bit about that, the advertising world and the norms that your, your agency is working to overcome? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I named this in my Ted talk, but there's like over 18,000 ad agencies in the U S alone that uh, have uh, national and global clients. And out of those, there's less than like 0.01% that are founded by women. So like most of these companies in this industry are founded by men and they're mostly founded by white men. So for me, it was like, what a huge opportunity. You know, I'm an immigrant in this country. Uh, I'm a minority in this country. I'm a woman in this country. You know, what a huge opportunity to have a different voice in this industry and to really do work that empowers people and to really do work with brands to try to make a larger and more meaningful impact on society. You know, I just thought, wow, like if I could, if I could take everything I loved about this talent I have and this thing that I do for a living and take all the good stuff and then none of the bad stuff and build that, I want to, I, I want to do that. Um, so that's kind of how this thing got birthed. And that's why I'm kind of here and doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you've worked on some really cool campaigns uh, and brands. So can you talk about some of your favorite and how you've made a difference? Um, yeah, sure. So um, one of my favorites is a project we worked with uh, Google on. And Google came to us and said, you know, only 1% are of girls are majoring in computer science, which means that women are really not um, creating any of the technology that we're we're using every day, and the the stats uh, in terms of girls coding are more dire than they were in the eighties. Uh, we're talking forty years ago. We're kind of at, at a at a 
in a worse place than they were back then. Um, so how do we change that? How do we, obviously this is like a huge pipeline problem for Google, but how do we change that? How do we inspire this next generation of girls to code and create like all the things that they could be creating by having a different voice in this industry? So we created, we kind of went away instead of just creating like a, a TV commercial or, you know, just like one piece of communication, we kind of went away and we said, you know, if we really want to, change this and do something really transformative, we need to create a program. This is not going to get solved by just doing a uh, piece of communication. Yes, we have a perception problem and um, we have to change that, but that's just like one small piece of this whole puzzle. We really need to create a whole program. And the first step is we need to inspire both um, parents and educators to see the value of code, because if you've never you know, as a parent, you didn't grow up with it. You're not going to know the value of it. If you're an educator and you've been, you know, a teacher for 40 years, you also maybe don't know the value of it. Um, so we did a film for parents and educators to inspire them and see the value of code. Then we said for the kids, for these girls, um, you know, how can you get into a field and you don't have any role models? So we literally went about, and this was in 2014. So we it wasn't like you can Google women and girls in tech and you would find like a million a million uh, girls and women doing amazing things. We literally like picked up the phone, cold called, called around, like tried to find these different women and girls in all these different industries, whether it was, di you know, diagnosing breast cancer early through code or whether it was um, uh, doing, doing uh, humanitarian work at UNICEF through code or whether it was creating musical beats with code or doing Pixar animation movies with code. Um, we really found like a real diverse collection of women and girls um, in all these different industries um, doing these amazing things. And we did documentaries with them. And our kind of big idea over this entire platform was, you know, we're not going to talk about code as an end in itself. We're going to talk about it as a means and as a means to something bigger, as a means to something that girls are already passionate about. So we're going to connect it to their passions instead of talking about it as an end. So we connected code to fashion. We connected code to music. We connected code to animation. We connected code to all these things that girls are already passionate about. So suddenly they started caring. So as soon as, you know, we finished the, um, the films and the documentaries, we on madewithcode.com, which was probably live for at least five years, we created all these different coding projects so girls can get coding right away. And, um, you know, at the time, there was no way to code except on a desktop computer. And our phones were just at that point where they were starting to get capacity to be able to do more stuff. So we created the first coding mobile experiences, you know, so girls can be on their phones coding and not just on desktop computers, because we all know girls are not sitting down on their desktop computers all day long. So we got girls coding right away and we did 13 different coding projects to get them um, coding. And they also spanned like all these different um, uh, fun projects, you know, animating a Yeti on stage or making a musical beat that you could download, et cetera. And then we created a whole directory. So if you're a girl, you're inspired, and then you started coding, you can also go to your mom, you can put in your zip code on the website and you can say, hey, mom, there's this really great camp this summer in San Francisco, or there's this really great after school class or this really cool, um, you know, uh, program that I would love to take with this nonprofit um, 
the summer or after school. And then you created this whole ecosystem to help these girls. And we partnered with all sorts of different nonprofits, Black Girls Code, Code Inc., Girls Who Code, um, even MIT, like, you know, educational institutions to really kind of hug everybody together into this one place. And that's how, and then obviously did a like launch event and all that stuff, but that's how we basically changed this. And our goal was to get 1 million girls coding. And I think six months after launch, we'd already had 5 million, 5 million girls who had coded on the website. That's incredible. I love that so much. <laughs> that must've been such a fun project. It was fun. And it was, uh, very challenging because we were creating software for Google. So, you know, it's no small feat. <laughs> and you also did a, a really interesting project with Netflix that I want to make sure we touch on because that one's that one's cool as well and, and uh, works on a lot of ways with diversity and inclusion. So can you tell us more about the Netflix project? Yeah, of course. So Netflix came to us at a really interesting juncture. Um, it was 2018, and they got to a point where, you know, they were doing amazingly well. Um, they were doing amazing content, but they couldn't just stand for content. You know, everybody was coming for their piece of the pie. Um, Amazon was growing its business. Hulu, uh, Apple Plus was coming. Disney Plus was coming. You know, all the streaming um, all the streaming uh, uh, platforms were kind of coming for Netflix's Netflix's business. So they couldn't just stand for like endless content. So they came to us with a global brand strategy positioning project. And uh, through that project, um, we obviously worked on their global brand strategy and kind of helped position them to to uh, have a unique positioning in the marketplace. Um, but then what we also did, we started uncovering different opportunities for them as a brand, because when you get those projects, you really do a ton of research on the, on the client and on the brand. And you uncover a lot of different opportunities that you see for them to be saying something that their competitors cannot um, so through one of those opportunities, which, you know, we ended up uncovering seven different opportunities and wrote seven different briefs for each of those opportunities. Um, one of those opportunities was um, through our strategy work, we, um, we wrote that one of their brand pillars was diversity, equity, and inclusion. And they've completely disrupted Hollywood. They've disrupted the way we make movies, who's in front of the camera, who's behind the camera, who writes the movies, who acts in the movies. They've changed the way we distribute movies. They've changed the way we make movies. They don't ship America to the world like Disney does. They basically go to Spain and they hire local crews, local directors, local writers, and they create shows like Casa del Papel. And then it kind of, then it goes out back into the world. So they really kind of localize content. And that, that's completely, completely disruptive in Hollywood. So we said, you really need to stand for this before another company comes along and stands for this before you do, you know, because it's only a matter of time before people pick up on, um, you know, needing to, to be equitable and be diverse and um, be inclusive in their, in their content. So we created this uh, one piece of film for them that launched um, for Oscar season in 2019. And they launched it with no paid media behind it. They just launched it on their social channels. And it basically became their most successful brand campaign to date at the time. Um, and they had a huge, huge amount of press uh, for this one piece of communication that they put no media behind, which was quite incredible. So it really, I remember even people saying like, 
this deserves an Oscar, you know, and people crying on the, in the comments, you know, on, on social media. So it was really quite a, a powerful piece um, for them to put out in the world and kind of stand for, for who they are and part of, um, part of what makes them uh, unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love that. So I would be missing an incredible opportunity um, if I didn't ask you this question. So um, I'm a, I'm a comms person. I've been in communications my entire career. Um, can you just um, give us your advice about some practical ways you think the world of advertising, branding, and marketing can do better to be more inclusive and equitable? It sounds so, it's like, it's simple, but it's not easy. I would say, um, like I'm constantly pushing myself to be uncomfortable and to do things that I know are not the norm or are not the status quo. And I feel it's like such a simple thing, but it's not an easy thing. Like I'll give you an example. I can't mention the brand that we're currently working on, but, um, you know, for example, working on this brand right now that has an industry that has not changed forever. And we're totally trying to disrupt this industry to really like build out this brand. And uh, the, the work that's been, that, that we're doing for this brand is not only um, showing very diverse people in the actual work that you see that you're going to see on screen and in the work. So everything from, you know, different religious representation, different sexual orientations, you know, uh, uh, everything from, uh, you know, just basically everything like, you know, trans representation, people of color, uh, different religions, all that stuff. But not only that, but also in the making of all this work, we're basically hiring and empowering and paying people who have been like historically underrepresented and have not been given opportunity. So that is a really simple thing, but it is not easy to do because it takes a lot of people that are really clear that we need to put an effort to do this. Like it is not easy. Like I'll give you an example on this one piece of film we're doing, you know, we were searching for, um, female or um, BIPOC uh, DPs, uh, so uh, cinematographers, basically. And it was not an easy task to find a lot of women and people of color that were really talented DPs. And I asked so many people in this industry, and everybody would, would be like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. You know, oh, I'm scratching my head. Oh, that's a tough one. You know, everybody they come up with is like white and male. And I'm like, it can't be that hard. And it just takes like asking and asking and asking and asking until you uncover. And to be honest, like now we've landed with some amazing diverse people and we've given jobs to these people that, you know, do not get opportunities. And I think that's, you have to do the work. Like, nothing, no change happens without doing the work um, and doing the work that's sometimes or oftentimes uncomfortable to do. The mm -hmm. easy, the easy option is to hire the person you've always hired. That's the easy option. Right. Right. The hard option is to hire the person that's never been given opportunity and go out of your way to make sure that they get the work. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great advice. It is. I, I, from personal experience, 
it is, can be hard, you know, and it does yeah, take patience and, and perseverance, but the payoff is huge. Um, the work I think is better when it's has diverse representation in, you know, from the creators all the way into the actual content. Of course. And the numbers back it up, like the finances even back it up. There's like real stats about like company revenue increases by like 15% when you have a diverse group of people thinking about something, you know, it's like, it has impact on the bottom line, but somehow people just kind of, it's just easy to keep doing what you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I also want to touch on the fact that you're a part of an advisory board for an init- initiative called 600 and rising. And I, I would love for it if you could just tell us a little bit more about that initiative and what you're doing as part of that group. Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, 600 and rising was uh, basically a organization um, that was formed almost a year ago that basically advocates for black talent, black voices to advance uh, in this industry in advertising and public relations, um, whether at a advertising agency, like external advertising agency, or uh, marketing and advertising departments inside of brands. Um, so we're on the only uh, non-Black minority on this board, and we basically work together. We're all obviously volunteers in this organization, and we basically um, do all sorts of work around equity, pay equity, um, advancements, You know, advocating for representation, um, in this industry, because it is insane that there's uh, so little representation of Black talent in this industry. So that's that's what that's about. Very cool. Mira, this has just been so fun. I feel like we could talk a ton, but I know your time is limited. So before I let you go, where can people connect with you and your work and find out more about uh, all of the incredible things that you're doing? Um, so there's, you know, obviously my social handle is just uh, M-I-R-A and then K-A-D-D-O-U-R-A. And then the um, my company's social handle is uh, red, the color red, and A-N-D, co-agency. Um, it's on Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. And then uh, just our website, so redandco.com. Awesome. And we will put those links in the show notes. Thank you again, Mira. What a great conversation. Keep up the amazing work and we look forward to continuing to follow your journey. Thank you so much for having me. The Days for Girls podcast is produced by Days for Girls International. For show notes and resources mentioned in this episode, visit daysforgirls.org forward slash podcast. If you'd like to support the work we do on the show, leave a rating or a review wherever you listen. Subscribe to the show and share episodes on social media or with your friends. To learn more about Days for Girls and to join our global movement, please visit daysforgirls.org. Thank you for listening. See you next time.